It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Monday edition of Daily Thunder. It's President's Day. I don't know if you guys noticed, but I have a little red, white, and blue uh, theme going here. Uh, I've always been a big uh, George Washington fan, so uh, this is a day to celebrate. Uh, he's a, he was a good man. Uh, any man that is going to refuse uh, power and leadership is a man I respect. Uh, so when they came to him, the Constitutional Convention came to him, and they were, uh, try- they were like, if there was one man that we could trust to be the President of the United States, it would be George. And then they come to George, and George is like, not on your life. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I just got done with the Revolutionary War. I'm like wanting to retire in peace. I don't want to have those complications. But you could have power. You could be over this nation. I don't want to be over this nation. I like that. It caused everyone else to go, that's exactly what we need. We want a guy who doesn't want the job. And you know that there's a truth in that too, that God wants to first cleanse us of the craving for control and power before he can entrust us with authority. Look at Moses. Moses was ready to save his people. Do you remember that? Uh, 40 years before God was ready to use him. And he took it into his own hands, takes an Egyptian, kills him, buries him in the sand. You see, he was like zealous to do it. He's like, I'm the leader. I know it. God has put me in this position. I can see it. And yet God's like, not yet. So he takes him to the backside of the wilderness and breaks him down to the point where Moses then says, yeah, I'm, I'm no good to you, God. <laughs> you can't use me. I can't talk. I, I, I can't do this uh, whole thing. I can't deliver your people. And then God says, that's exactly why I can use you. And so it's when we come to the end of ourselves that suddenly we become very useful to God. So I'm in part six of a uh, series that I've been doing called Spiritual Lessons from World War II. I don't know if you guys have actually learned anything about World War II in this whole process. It'd be fascinating because when you're, when you're teaching, you don't oftentimes notice what could be gleaned or what could be gained because my point isn't just to teach you history. It's to leverage history to teach you truths that are revealed through it. And, but it's been very enjoyable for me. I really enjoy uh, history and I enjoy the stories of World War II. And it's funny because most of what I've talked about is very disturbing. <laughs> it's not like, oh, and joyful, they, they won vict- victory. I haven't even gotten there. There was no victory so far. It's just defeat, 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 defeat. And yet, it's been uh, deeply impacting to me just to meditate upon these things. This particular one is actually what started out my thinking that I should do something on World War II. It's, uh, it's actually this message. My original series title was called 1940 instead of Spiritual Lessons from World War II, but then I thought that's going to be confusing because World War II starts in 1939 and goes through 1945. 1940, what's the big deal? But in 1940, you have what I could call the proving of the nation of Great Britain, and it is a profound picture of something that I deeply desire for our generation. And that will unfold as I go through this, but this is, this is significant. The fact that it ends up on a Monday in this sort of obscure daily thunder time, but this is very significant to me. And uh, in a sense, I feel like I have been Great Britain in this story, and I have gone through a tremendous proving or testing of my own life to see what I'm made of. And I think this is what our generation needs. 
And so let's just walk through this. I think uh, you'll find this fascinating. So I could have called this 1940. I didn't. I called it the proving of a nation, of the nation. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, is going to talk about this idea of trials proving faith. And so there's something about the attitude of the New Testament believer. I'm not going to say the Old Testament doesn't have this. I'm going to say in the New Testament, we see it come into its own. We see it rise to the surface uh, and become clear. When Paul is going through the book of Acts, you almost see the church learning the doctrine of suffering and the importance of it. Where at first they're like, oh, Paul, we don't want you to suffer. And he's like, let me suffer, guys. I'm doing this for Jesus. And so you see the disciples being taken in and, and uh, flogged and beaten, and they come out rejoicing. It's like, what is happening? What is this that is being explained to us? Because just like us, it wasn't normal to go through difficulty and rejoice. Okay, it's not like it was a first century thing where they're, they're just like, no, suffering is fun. And back then in the olden days, it was actually fun. It was never fun. It never has been fun. However, there was something that the disciples were learning. Disciples become apostles. were learning. And that is that when we go through difficulty, it actually is the stimulus package if we leverage it correctly, because you can go into despair when you go into difficulty, you can go into depression, you can fall to pieces, or it can lever be leveraged into a greater strength. And I've used this illustration before, and I'll use it many times, is that many of us pay good money to have a gym membership, right? And we're like, yes, I'm going to put money on the table and pay each month so that I can go to a gym. And, I mean, what are we, loony? What's wrong with us that we would do this? And we're going to go to this gym, and what are we going to do? Experience pain. Okay, here, here's some money, and I would like to experience some pain, thank you. And then they look over, and they show us all these torture devices, these weight, uh, weight sets and, and various machines. And we're like, yes, I will submit to that weight uh, machine, that torture device, and I will experience pain in my body. Now, why is it that we do that? It's because we know that that pain is working greater strength. For whatever reason, the devil has clouded our understanding that that is exactly how Christianity works. So we have a free health club membership to life. Free. You don't even have to pay for the trials and the weight equipment and all the torture chambers that you get to have access to. There's no hand slap. It's like you have difficulties <laughs> and they're just waiting for you. But how you appropriate those difficulties is going to define if you get stronger or weaker. For instance, if I was not taught about the benefit of weights and I found myself on a weight bench laying there and I'm like, so is this what I do? And they're like, yes, stay right there. And then someone brings up a weight and sets it on my chest. Like, oh, what, what's this? Just let it sit there. And, you know, you're just like under this thing. It's like you're starting to rub your ribs wrong. You're like, ah, this is really hurting. And no one tells you to press against it. No one tells you to resist it. What's going to happen? It's probably going to break your ribs after a while. I don't know. It's going to bruise you. And it's not going to be fun. And you'll probably never want to experience that type of pain again. But what if from a young age you are trained? It's like, young man or young lady, this is good for you. And you are trained in athletic sports and mindsets. You don't resent those difficulties. Now, some of you still might have a bad attitude towards exercise, okay? It's possible. 
But some of us in here know exactly what I mean by the fact that we actually, in a strange way, anticipate a workout. Even though you'll hear us after the workout grumble about how hard it was and, boy, that was a miserable workout, we'll come back. Why? Because we know that it is working good in us, okay? So when you take that same concept and begin to attribute it to what is being described in Scripture, it actually helps you understand how we approach the Christian life. That this is our opportunity to grow stronger. So, Peter, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by, many, by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we also have the Apostle James in James 1, 2 through 4 saying, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy when you face these difficulties, when you face these weights, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, most of us, when we hear that it's going to produce patience, are like, you know what, I don't need that. You do. See, patience is a lot more stout of a word than what you think it is. It is like the stuff of soul that is able to endure any hardship. So if, if you think, you know, that 10-pound weight was difficult, if you use that 10-pound weight and rejoice in it, guess what? You're going to be built for a 15-pound weight. And guess what? If you take that 15-pound weight and you use it with joy, guess what? You'll be prepared for a 20-pound weight. That's patience. It's the growing strength to endure any weight that comes your way. And God will never test you with a weight that is beyond what you can handle. And so as a result, you can rejoice with every weight that comes your way, knowing that God has supplied you everything you need to grow through it. So 1939 is the very beginnings of World War II. So it's a dark year. What we've had, like even in the United States, if you were to think about this year, okay, 1939, it's bleak. Okay, it's interesting because most of us in World War II, we fail to connect what is happening oftentimes in America at the same time. We're in the middle of the Great Depression here. You know what's going to end the Great Depression in America? World War II. <laughs> Strange as that is, that's, there's something to say about us finally rising up and doing that which is right in the world actually causes that Great Depression in our life. When you turn outward and you serve and you give, it actually is going to remove the Great Depression. Boy, I just gave you a secret uh, of history right there. So 1939, Great Britain at its weakest. It's such an irony that in 1939, at the very start of this, we have Great Britain on the ropes. I mean, it is looking weak. It is pathetic. In fact, all of us would hold it in contempt. If I were to just read you what the politicians were saying, what the young, what the young culture of that day was thinking like and acting like, it's like, what a joke. There is, this has to be the worst generation Great Britain has ever had. And yet... In a matter of six years, that one generation that would have been considered the laughingstock of the world at that time, I mean, literally, they were being mocked by all the other nations. Fat, rich kids in Great Britain, look at how self-centered they are. Only thinking about, they have this ideology that is so, you know, highfalutin, but it's no good in the real world. I mean, it sounds very familiar uh, to what we're going through in America right now. That same generation is going to be ranked in history as possibly one of the most courageous, most noble, and most heroic generations of all time. It's those that fought and died in World War II. 
Think about it. If you were to think back on history of some of the, and we've oftentimes referred back to World War II men that gave up their life and the women that rose up in the homeland to even make the munitions. I mean, it's an incredible story of what's going to happen in Great Britain in the upcoming years. But if you recognize that they were in a state of disrepair so laughable and embarrassing to the world right here, right before the beginning of the war, it actually gives you a little hope because that's why this is so significant to me because I'm looking at the generation around me right now and I'm thinking, dear God, where are we headed, right? Well, uh, it could be in in a very similar direction as this. So 1939, Great Britain at its weakest. Now listen to this. 1940, Great Britain at its strongest. Whoa, whoa, wait wait a minute here. That was was like one year. Yep. This country is going to flip upside down in one year. It is going to be tested. All of its high ideology and high-mindedness in regards to pacifism, like, no, no, we will never fight again, is going to go by the wayside when they recognize Hitler has to be stopped. How are they going to figure that out? Well, Hitler starts attacking them. And that's going to wake up even the person in the deadest sleep. And so it's funny how oftentimes, as long as evil is out there and, you know, hitting someone else in their neighborhood, we don't care. But when it comes into our own neighborhood and our own backyard, suddenly we become activists. And we're like, hey, this is wrong. Yeah, it was wrong the whole time. I'm glad you're finally waking up to it. It's been wrong the whole time. So that's why I wanted to call this 1940 as a symbol to say, yeah, we need, we're, we're stuck in 1939 in our country right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad news of where we're headed as a country. However, this can shift on a dime. So let's explore 1939 Great Britain at its weakest, not the most uh, pleasant meditation. In this dark time, the basest sentiments received acceptance or passed unchallenged by the responsible leaders of the political parties. In 1933, by the way, for those of you getting this on podcast, this is uh, Winston Churchill talking. In 1933, the students of the Oxford Union, under the inspiration of a Mr. Jode, passed their ever shameful resolution that this house refuses to fight for king and country. So this is called, uh, oh, it's for, for king and country. I, f- I forgot what the, the exact name of the controversy was. But it's all these young students that come together and they basically pass, they, they're passing a resolution saying, we will, as the younger generation, not fight for king and not fight for country. We will not lift a finger. I don't care how bad it gets, we will not fight. Okay, this is right when Hitler is coming into power. That they, and this is like a mockery. All the nations around the earth are literally looking at this as a total joke. And wh- how do you think Hitler, how do you think Mussolini are pondering this? In fact, Mussolini is going to take this as his reasons for being aggressive in his forward movement to actually take the nation of Abyssinia, knowing that no one's going to fight him to do it. It's actually empowering evil when you say, we will not fight. We will not lift a finger against the devil. We're tired of spiritual warfare. We will not fight. Well, the devil's going to eat you for lunch. So that this house refuses to fight for king and country. It was easy to laugh off such an episode in England. But in Germany, in Russia, in Italy, in Japan, the idea of a decadent, degenerate Britain took deep root and swayed many calculations. I love how Winston Churchill writes, by the way. I don't know if you guys have noticed. I really enjoy uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, so, <laughs> so Mussolini uh, is going to have a, uh, a, 
actually, this is what Churchill says that Mussolini thought. I don't know if it's a direct quote from Mussolini. I wish I could have stuck Mussolini's picture next to the quote. I couldn't because in good conscience, I, I just know Winston Churchill said that this is what Mussolini thought. But Great Britain was deemed by Mussolini a frightened, flabby old woman. So you can just imagine what Churchill's feeling. It's like, come on, people! He wasn't in a position of power to do anything at the time. There was 11 years where he was ousted because he wanted to stand against Hitler, and so he was a, more, a warmonger and a fearmonger. And so Churchill's on the sideline in Parliament, and as he would say, you know, it's like he still can talk, but he has no vote. He has no power to sway the nation. And so, he, I mean, it's driving him crazy that, uh, he, that Great Britain looks like a frightened, flabby old woman. Sorry for all of you that... Uh, feel like uh, that, that might describe you in the future. It won't, okay? That will, not be, that will not be how you are, okay? You don't need to grow up to be that because we have some you know, young women in here that are a little concerned about that. Okay, so there's a great moment in the, in the story of World War II, and that is the German ambassador is going to have a private conversation with uh, Churchill to basically sort of insinuate let us have a free hand to the east, which means let us take Austria, let us take Czechoslovakia, let us take Poland. And Churchill knows how his nation is behaving, and, they know, and he knows that they don't want to fight, and he knows that it's peace, peace, peace at all costs. However, this is what he says to the, the German ambassador. He says, he leans in, it's sort of that quiet moment where the guy's like, let us, let us have a free hand, Winston. Don't underestimate England, sir. And it's like this moment where then there's silence. And it's, it's like a movie scene where the guy then marches out. And because that's exactly what Germany was doing. They were underestimating England. I understand why. Just like I could easily underestimate our generation today. And it's also possible that the devil is underestimating our generation today. And that's almost the quote I want to have come out of me. You know, since my middle name's Winston, right? It can come out of me, right? Don't underestimate this generation of young Christians, oh devil. You see, there is a fight in us. It's just, even this generation doesn't know it yet. But when the day comes, watch. So 1940, Great Britain at its strongest. This is quite the year for Great Britain. I mean, it is like the year that they would never want to repeat again. It's called, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Battle of Britain, but it is, uh, when you think of World War II, it's at the beginning portions, which oftentimes it gets buried. We usually know about like D-Day or the Battle of the Bulge, but the Battle of Britain is this crucial uh, juncture where uh, it's the first time that England or Great Britain has been invaded on its shores in over a thousand years. I mean, that's, that's quite a statement, okay? An island nation with the strongest navy in the world, but there's a change, and that is that there's the invention of airplanes. And so, whereas Germany doesn't have the naval power to attack, and they couldn't figure out how to get their troops on the ground over on the island, they were flying and bombing uh, London, which was the largest city in the world at the time. And they're just like sitting ducks for bombs coming down. It's called the Battle of Britain. It's a great story in and of itself, which I'm not going to cover today. However, what I want to cover is how Great Britain responded internally to this, like how their souls responded. This is a nation that has known truth, that has had some of the greatest truth preached to it over the years, 
and yet it has lost it. And it has turned towards self-serving pacifism to say, hey, we want our rights, we want our wealth, we don't want to fight wars and spend our money on munitions, we want to save our money and grow fat and happy. I mean, that's literally where Great Britain was. And now suddenly, the attacks begin. And everything shifts in this nation. So Winston Churchill says, in 1935, France, unaided by her previous allies, could have invaded and reoccupied Germany almost without serious fighting. In other words, when Hitler came in in 1933, in 1935, France could have easily occupied and taken down Hitler. They just did not want to fight. The same thing with Great Britain. In 1936, there still could be no doubt of her overwhelmingly superior strength. We know now from the German revelations that this continued in 1938. And it was the knowledge of their weakness which led the German high command to do their utmost to restrain Hitler from every one of the successful strokes by which his fame was enhanced. History, which we are told, is mainly the record of the crimes, follies, and miseries of mankind, may be scoured and ransacked to find a parallel to this sudden and complete reversal of five or six years' policy of easy-going, placatory appeasement and its transformation almost overnight into a readiness to accept an obviously imminent war on far worse conditions and on the greatest scale. It's funny because, funny, I don't know if that's the right word. France and Great Britain could have easily stopped Hitler. I mean, easily. I mean, lift a pinky and he stopped. He didn't have a standing army. He didn't occupy any of the territory that would be a threat. He didn't have the ability to even make any military armaments unless everyone literally came to his aid and helped him do it. At any point in time, they could have stopped him. And yet, it's only when imminent war was there, and it was on the worst possible conditions, where Great Britain and France were weaker than Germany, that they decide to fight. And that's what Winston Churchill's bringing up. He's like, guys, we could have dealt with this when we were in a strong position. However, we're in a weak position. Great. However, because of that weakness, you're going to see the character of a nation rise up. If they were in the strong position, then they're fat and happy. Hey, we don't want to do anything. The moment they became the weaker party, it's very fascinating how their character showed. Here is a line of milestones to disaster. Here is a catalog of surrenders. At first when all was easy and later when things were harder to the ever-growing German power, but now at last was the end of British and French submission. Here was decision at last, taken at the worst possible moment and on the least satisfactory ground, which must surely lead to the slaughter of tens of millions of people. Here was the righteous cause, deliberately and with a refinement of inverted artistry, committed to mortal battle after its assets and advantages had been so improvidently squandered. Still, if you will not fight for the right when you can easily win without bloodshed, if you will not fight when your victory will be sure and not too costly, You may come to the moment when you will have to fight with all the odds against you and only a precarious chance of survival. There may be even a worse case. You may have to fight when there is no hope of victory because it is better to perish than to live as slaves. Where are we at as a generation? So many times over, the church of Jesus could have risen up and taken its strength and leveraged it in this world. Instead, we have placated, we have appeased, We have gone into our little hole of political correctness and coward. Meanwhile, the powers of evil in our culture have grown so strong that now we think it's important to rise up and do something. 
In fact, I don't even know that we're at that place. I actually wonder if still more is needed before we finally say, that's enough. But it is interesting because in history, this is a pattern. Where good men, good women, who know the truth, are silenced because they don't want war. And I don't just mean physical war. I mean to fight for truth. To fight for that which is right. In other words, I'm not planning on picking up a gun to have war. I'm planning on picking up the resolve of spiritual, my spiritual man to use the weapons of my warfare, which are spiritual weapons, to tear down the institutions of evil in this generation. But there has to be a concerted growl within the church to do this. Sorry, my clickers uh, had a tough time lately. The Dumbest Generation. You know that there's a book, uh, I want to say that it's called The Dumbest Generation Ever. Okay, you guys are going to really like this. Uh, this is very complimentary. Uh, but it, the book is talking about the younger generation that is currently in their uh, 20s. That it's considered the, young, the dumbest generation ever. Okay, <laughs> there's a, it's all this research that is done. I mean, it's a very sad commentary, right? Now, you have to realize, it's, it's really fun for me to say it, right? Because I'm 49 and I'm not in that generation. However, my generation would probably be the second or the third dumbest ever, okay? I'm just a little bit removed. So it's really nice that you guys get tagged with something and I can just sort of look like, oh, well, I'm not the dumbest. Uh, however, I want to stir you up and somewhat offend your soul with this. That's the way I, it actually should be. It should be like, excuse me? That's, that's what I want inside of you. I want to shove you a little and just repeat this uh, and just see how you respond. So the dumbest generation, it is highly unlikely that the church today would prove to be the greatest, strongest generation ever. Okay, if we were going to pick a generation of Christians that would have the likelihood of being referred back to in history as the strongest generation of Christians ever, we are highly unlikely to be a candidate for that. If we were nominating generations of Christians, I have a hunch we wouldn't nominate our current generation. And that's what intrigues me. Because God seems to go out of his way to pick generations that are actually not the most likely. He does, just does that. He chooses weak things. And that's what we are. So you know that we are considered the most unready generation ever for war. Isn't that fascinating? Based on what we're talking about right now, that this generation is actually the most unfit and unready for war out of any generation in history. There's 75% of the younger generation that are actually ineligible to join the military due to these three things. Obesity, lack of education, and lack of hearing. So obesity, they are unfit physically, unable to perform the most basic military maneuvers. Out, out, ineligible. Uneducated, they're unlearned mentally, unable to pass the most basic academic tests of competence. Well, you need to have a brain to work in the military. Uh, when, when, when your commander says, do this, you say, sir, yes, sir. See, you need a brain for that, right? We're lacking even the brain for that, I guess. Listen to this one. Can't hear. You have to pass certain tests to be able to get into the military, and we have hearing issues in the younger generation. Lost acute hearing ability due to the volume of music. Is that embarrassing, or am I the only one that is staring at this list going, you've got to be kidding me? So just think about what we were talking about. We're talking about a parallel between 1939 Great Britain and our generation right now. 
and I'm sort of grouping myself with, with the younger generation right now. I, I wouldn't be the one drafted in a military, uh, but we'll put ourselves together. I'll join you guys uh, in being the dumbest generation ever. Then you guys don't feel like you're all alone here. So listen to this one, too. The generation, this generation is the least apt to produce warriors for cultural, moral, civic, and private good. So when they've evaluated this generation, they're saying, okay, out of all the generations on record that we can study and look into, this generation currently is the least apt, which means it's the least likely to produce a warrior for cultural good, for moral good, for civic good, or for private good. That, that doesn't bode well. <laughs> That's not good. And listen to this. The motto for exertion of soul. Supply strength and passion only to the causes that best serves self's comfort and self's continued gratification. So if you're going to work hard for something, it's because self gets something out of it. It's, uh, how am I going to be gratified through this? Oh, okay. Well, I'll do that then. But what if it is for something higher or more noble? What if it is for someone else's good? What if it is to protect someone that God values? Well, we don't have a grid for that. That isn't how we've been groomed and trained. We've been trained to think about us. Well, what does the gospel do? The gospel sets us free to actually concern ourselves with his glory and with others' care. And that's where there's an impasse. 1940, the proving of a nation. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. We have in 1939 a world power that is creating an axis of evil. So we have Germany and Italy that have bound together, and that is some very stout company. Okay, When you have Hitler and Mussolini joining together to stand, knowing that England and France are flabby old women, and they're not going to do anything, and they've proven it. For years, they have done nothing. When evil has advanced, they've done nothing. And so as a result, Germany and Italy are boasting. I mean, they are looking proud and pompous and arrogant. Guess who on the other side of the world is noticing? Japan. Japan, who has a similar inclination to start claiming territory, is noticing that the major powers of the earth, including the United States, are doing nothing. So what do they begin to do? They begin to go after land grabs, too. They're like, hey, let's take what we can when everyone is sleeping. Let's go after it. This is what's happening, and no one is doing anything. Until Poland is invaded, the Allies do nothing. So the fact that World War, I, World War II started in 1939 is a shameful statement. However, I'm really glad it started, at least in 1939. And so when Poland is invaded, suddenly the Allies say, enough is enough. And you see an awakening. And Hitler sort of looks over at great, well, takes France. I haven't even gone into that. But the Battle of France, literally France is devastated by Germany. Germany has now become the stronger party and devastates France uh, in short order. And then you have crisis, which is right, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh, the Dunkirk, the miracle of Dunkirk, but it's a good story. And that's right when uh, Churchill is being set in place as prime minister. He gets the worst, uh, that's why there's a whole movie about Churchill called The Darkest Hour. It is the worst possible time in history to be uh, put into the prime minister position. It's like, here you go, Churchill. <laughs> Take this mess and make something of it because they're the, they've been weakened. And so he rises up and he defies it. I mean, it's a pretty 
stout picture of what we need to do in our souls. That's, that's why I'm always, I've always been very attracted to Winston Churchill, not just because I have a middle name, Winston, uh, which I, I want to brag about when we talk about Winston Churchill, but you do remember that my name, Eric Ludi, matches the name of Eric Ludendorff uh, from Germany, who is the big sponsor of Hitler, uh, too. So uh, I, I have some issues, uh, some like internal issues, like flesh spirit type of things when you look at my name. It's terrible. Uh, so God has chosen the foolish things. He's chosen Great Britain of 1939 to defy these powers. I mean, you have some serious evil going on. And this generation, if we were voters and we were going to say, okay, what do you think Great Britain's going to do? Do you know that every nation, even France, said Great Britain is going to fall quickly. It's going to shatter to pieces. There is no way that it's going to be able to stand against this. Because France even fell. All that's left, in fact, uh, Winston Churchill has a book called Alone. They're the only nation on earth that is standing against this evil, but they stand. And as strange as it is, this nation that I've already described to you that all of you are clucking your tongues at going, they are disgusting. They are overfed felines. You know, they're just sitting there preening themselves all day long. Wake up is what you want to say. They wake up. They wake up and they are willing to stand all alone. They are not going to kowtow to this evil. And they resist it. And that's what's so interesting here on the spiritual side. What is going to happen inside of Great Britain is what needs to happen inside of us. So Winston Churchill says, the sinister news of the German-Soviet pact. So it's sort of hard to understand at the very beginning unless you know the whole, but Russia was an ally of Great Britain, France, and Italy in World War I. Russia is going to fall. The Tsar of Russia is going to fall in World War I. That's actually one of the great travesties of World War I is that Soviet uh, communism is going to enter into Russia because of World War I. Now we ha- that led to Lenin, which then, now we have Stalin. Okay, Joseph Stalin, a, you know, arguably as wicked or more <laughs> wicked than Hitler, if that's possible. Okay, he is a bad man. And so what we have is, uh, Soviet Russia is actually going to first ally, or have a pact, not ally, but have a pact with Germany, which is a very dark day for Great Britain, okay? Because the, France is falling to pieces. We have a pact between Soviet Russia and Germany, which, what does that do to Great Britain? It leaves them all alone, okay? So it's a very bad moment for them in history. But Hitler is lying to Stalin. He hates what he calls Jews and Bolsheviks, okay? Which he looks at all of communism as Jews and Bolsheviks, communists. And so he's going to actually secretly, which I'm going to cover in a different episode, he's going to secretly conspire to bait Stalin to trust him, and then he's going to try and kill him. I mean, Hitler's a very bad guy. Of course, you can't really defend Stalin because he's just as evil, and so you're sort of like, well, maybe it's good for Stalin (laughs) that that happened. But at the same time, it just shows you the insipid nature of what we're dealing with. And at that time... Soviet Russia is going to actually then ally again with uh, Great Britain. And so in the pictures of World War II, you're going to oftentimes see Churchill, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin, which is really weird for all of us to see. It's like, what is Joseph Stalin doing in the picture? Well, he was fighting for his life, and we were trying to take out Hitler. Okay, it's sort of, And you could even see the, the thought process. Let's deal with Hitler. 
then we'll deal with Stalin. But right now, let's deal with Hitler, and if Stalin's going to help us, I guess we'll let Stalin help us. Sort of interesting ethics, I know. So the sinister news of the German-Soviet pact broke upon the world like an explosion. Whatever emotions the British government may have experienced, listen to this, fear was not among them. That is a very interesting statement. What you're going to see in these next few slides that I'm going to read are, Churchill is going to describe the change of a nation. This nation of, of Great Britain is going to respond in a very different way than we would have all guessed on paper. What you're expecting is for them to go into the fetal position and fall to pieces. Instead, they're going to rise up and defy. It is a curious fact about the British Islanders, who hate drill and have not been invaded for nearly a thousand years, that as danger comes nearer and grows, they become progressively less nervous. When it is imminent, they are fierce. When it is mortal, they are fearless. These habits have led them into some very, very narrow escapes. I'm just extremely fascinated by that description because as Christians, you know we have a tendency to be more fearful towards just the unknown hauntings of what the enemy could do. But when we get ourselves engaged, we're like British Islanders. And this is what I want to call out in you. I want to call out what the Spirit of God desires to build inside of you, which is the same thing. That as danger comes nearer and grows, they become progressively less nervous. When it is imminent, they are fierce. When it is mortal, they are fearless. These habits have led them into some very, very, very narrow escapes. So during the first attacks from the German airplanes while down in the bomb shelters, so they're all gathering and the first siren goes off and they have no idea. It's this huge loud screech. They've never heard it before in London. I mean, if you think about it, London's never been attacked. I mean, this is like for so many uh, years. We're talking over a thousand years. And so none of these people have any tales to tell about this except when you go back into the ancient history books when you're dealing with, you know, clubs and knives. You know, that's the way it feels. Like, we're going back so far. And suddenly they are being attacked in the air, which is unprecedented. There's no experience to even draw from in this. And so they're going down into bomb shelters. Now, just to imagine, now these are just basements, by the way. To call them bomb shelters, they didn't have bomb shelters because they didn't build it with airplanes and bombs in, in mind. And so they're just going into basements. And when they're down there, listen to what uh, Churchill says. Everyone was cheerful and jocular. In other words, sort of cracking jokes. As is the English manner when about to encounter the unknown. I mean, if you've never even experienced a bomb going off uh, in your city from above, and yet they're laughing and making jokes. The other nation that is very uh, known for doing this is the Australians. That when you put the Australians in the most difficult situations, the thing that comes out of them is humor. It's oftentimes gallows. It's oftentimes called gallows humor. It's like someone's being led to the gallows and they start cracking jokes. Uh, when you face death, it actually brings out humor, which is a fascinating statement. But the English people are laughing in the bomb shelters. This is the same people that were so afraid of engaging an enemy. Now when the enemy is engaging them, they rise up as one man, fearless. It's an incredible statement. This is, this is my vision for the church, guys. And I, I would love it if we didn't need to get to the point where we're literally in a bomb shelter before we finally rise up and say, you know what, we should do something. The glory of old England, peace-loving and ill-prepared as she was, 
but instant and fearless at the call of honor. Thrilled my being and seemed to lift our fate to those spheres far above from earthly facts and physical sensation. This literally is like heaven to Winston Churchill to see his people that he had mourned over, that he had struggled and agonized over seeing their, their disintegration before his eyes in the face of that evil. Now suddenly as one man they rise up and this is like thrilling to him. This is like my dream. This is my dream that I would see the church rise up as one man with the same undauntedness. So streams in the desert. This is just a quotation that I think you guys will enjoy. Temptation is necessary to settle and confirm us in the spiritual life. It's a strange statement. Sort of like weights are necessary to build muscle. It's like me saying that. Temptation which doesn't come from God. It's going to come from the circumstances around us. The devil's going to try and bait us. We have a very real evil out there. And when we are hit by that evil, it actually works to settle and confirm in us in the spiritual life. It is like the fire which burns in the colors of mineral painting or like the winds that cause the mighty cedars of the mountain to strike more deeply into the soil. When the winds beat against an oak tree, it actually causes that oak tree to become more strong, and its root system grabs deeper. When you are hit by winds, you find that your root system will actually take greater hold into the soil. Our spiritual conflicts are among our choicest blessings, and our great adversary is used to train us for his ultimate defeat. That is an incredible line. Our great adversary is used to train us for our, ult, our, ult, our great adversary's ultimate defeat. In other words, we are being trained by our adversary to defeat our adversary. We are becoming stronger by our adversary moving against us to actually destroy our adversary. The ancient Phrygians, which, uh, or Phrygians, which is going to be like Turkey today, had a legend that every time they conquered an enemy, the victor absorbed the physical strength of his victim and added so much more to his own strength and valor. Now, I'm not supporting this notion that of what the Phrygians are saying. I'm saying uh, what this next line is. So, temptation victoriously met doubles our spiritual strength and equipment. So what happens, now imagine, you know, the Phrygians are going to say, okay, I have an enemy here, and when I beat that enemy... I actually increase in strength. And now he, he's saying, I get his strength in me, okay? Now, I don't want the devil's junk, right? And so I, I beat the devil, and I don't want anything that he has. However, in so defeating the devil, I am adding to my own strength and arsenal. What I have in my military uh, deposit is actually increased. My strength is increasing as I overcome evil. And this is how God has defined it. It is possible for us in our spiritual life through the victorious grace of God to turn to account the things that seem most unfriendly and unfavorable and to be able to say continually the things that were against me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. So if you look at World War II and the history of the movements of evil and then suddenly it begins to encroach upon Great Britain, all of this, even the failures of Great Britain become part of the lesson and they rise up with remorse. I mean, even the reason Winston Churchill is put in the position is because he was a guy who stood and that nation recognizes it. And they're like, we need Winston. Winston, Winston, Winston. We need a man who understood the whole while what was needed. 
I would prefer you to be a Winston Churchill instead of a, I think he called him a Mr. Jode, a certain Mr. Jode that was counseling all the young people in the generation to, fight, to, to not fight for king and country, to defy it. Uh, even if they asked you to fight, you say no. And this then spread to the United States, and we had a huge movement of, against king and country in, our, in, in America, too, where all these college students were saying, we will not fight, we will not fight. And still to this day, we look at our World War II vets as some of the most noble, honorable men that ever lived in our country. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? Yet this is a generation that was swept over at one point in time with tremendous compromise and self-service. So to finish, let's look at our scripture from 1 Peter 1 again. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by, many, by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if we are in 1939 right now, let us as a body ask God, to bring us into a 1940, to bring us into a proving ground where we can actually rise up and awaken out of our stupor and actually utilize the weapons of warfare that have been entrusted to us to tear down the strongholds of the enemy. We have a shot, one shot at living this life. This is the season in which we live, and may it be considered the greatest generation Father, that request is so grandiose that it seems comical. But Lord, you love to use weak things, foolish things. And right now, Lord Jesus, we are staring around this world and we are seeing a very weak and foolish thing. I pray that you would rescue us from that weakness and that foolishness and that you would set our feet upon rock, fix our spines straight, Tip our chins upward. Give us a forehead of flint, a backbone of steel. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would move us forward with confidence and courage to engage darkness, to stand firm for your truth in a generation that doesn't want it. Lord, we submit to you as your children. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.